Today's Bible readings from 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Sexual immorality. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Don't say I didn't give you an opportunity. A, uh, a revolution is defined as a forcible overthrow of a societal order or government in favour of a new system. It's about throwing off the shackles of oppression or perhaps tradition and ushering in a new era of freedom and liberty. And so I think it's a really significant thing to call anything a revolution. For example, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Now, some would actually say that this was a uh, second sexual revolution uh, due to the cultural changes that happened in the late 19th century and into the, you know, the roaring 20s when you had Kinsey and all that sort of stuff going on. But I think this was the more notable sexual revolution in our history. It's when sex threw off the shackles of traditional marital monogamy and was ushered into a new era of free love and unrestrained sexual expression. Extramarital sex became normal and acceptable. Experimentation and sleeping around, they were no longer frowned on or you know, tucked away. Masturbation, homosexuality and other controversial topics were now discussed openly. No-fault divorce loosened the bindings of lifelong marriage commitment. And of course, sex hit the mainstream big screen in a new way and it helped to kick off the pornography industry. And the revolution continues to this day, doesn't it? Same-sex marriage is legalised. Transgenderism and gender fluidity is urged as a social norm. Radical sexual ideology is pushed by governments, by corporations, by schools and even by football clubs. And pornography is spoken of as a regular, healthy form of entertainment. This, our culture would say, is sexual freedom. We are free. And if you stand against that, you are a prudish traditionalist who only wants to bring back oppression and slavery. But I think what history so regularly teach us, teaches us about revolutions is that they just replace one set of shackles for another. 
For example, the Marxist revolution in Russia replaced violence, imperialism, and oppression of the lower classes with violence and Bolshevism and oppression of the middle classes. And millions of people were slaughtered. No one was safe. It was an absolutely false freedom. And I want to make the bold claim today that the freedom of the sexual revolution is also a false freedom. That's not to say that there's nothing good about it, but that the idea of unrestrained sexual expression only creates other forms of oppression. I could talk for an hour about the victims of the sex trade. Just last week, we considered the children who are kidnapped and trafficked into online sexual exploitation, or OSEC. And we hardly even touched on those who are trafficked forcibly into conventional prostitution. Even those who choose to enter the sex trade, whether it's prostitution, pornography, or something else, so many of them will testify to feeling trapped and imprisoned by the industry. Not to mention the captivity of plain old objectification. And then there are the many hundreds of millions of people who are trapped in the very sexual freedom they claim to celebrate. The pornography industry rakes in over $100 billion a year. It's more than the top 10 tech companies combined. There are over 5 million porn sites online and hundreds of millions of visitors regularly. Of all the videos online, 27% of them are pornographic. Some stats say that one in three women and two in three men are viewing porn weekly or more. Now, sure, this could just be a lot of people celebrating sexual freedom. Or it's a lot of people who are addicted and enslaved, many of whom have come out and said so. And I haven't said anything about those who are trapped in those patterns of one-night stands or destructive sexual relationships or the bindings of a culture that makes everything about sex so you literally cannot escape it. Or the Me Too movement in a world that claims sexual freedom still wants to wrap it up in layers and layers of red tape becomes bureaucratic, doesn't it? And it's no wonder our world is utterly confused. Paul would sum up uh, the difference, whether it's in regards to prostitution or pornography or promiscuity. He would sum it up by what is permissible and what is beneficial. Sure, people may be free and permitted by the law to sleep around or to pay for sex or to watch porn and masturbate, but is it good for you? And are you in control of your desires or being controlled by them? Are you mastering them or being mastered by them? We looked at 2 Peter recently. And this is what Peter says about the self-delusional flesh indulgers of chapter 2. That is the false teachers. He says, they promise freedom. We're free, guys. We're free to do this, that and the other while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And whether it's sex 
or screens or sugar or shopping or spirits. They can also easily become our masters, our slave owners. Why? Because deep down we are wanting those things to meet longings and needs in our lives that only our maker can possibly meet. For example, we want rewards. We want lasting treasure to value and cling to. But all that stuff is temporary and futile. We want control over our lives. And alongside that, we want trustworthy guidance from from those around us. But all those things take control of us and they use us. We want belonging and acceptance without judgment and fear. But none of that stuff is a substitute for meaningful relationships. And so we get the opposite of the things that we really desire, don't we? Instead of good gifts, instead of treasure to value that lasts, we get robbed. Instead of freedom, we get enslaved. And instead of being connected and loved, we get lonely and isolated. And I wonder if this is true for you at the moment. Are you looking for fulfillment in things that cannot satisfy? When you stumble back into pornography or you fantasize about someone who is not your spouse, what is triggering that desire? If you're into picking up and sleeping around, does that give you lasting fulfillment? And what insecurities are pushing you into that lifestyle? Because I can guarantee you that free love is a false freedom. It is a counterfeit, a forgery, a fake. True freedom, on the other hand, is found counterintuitively in being both owned and occupied. Let's have a look at those two words for a little bit. Firstly, being owned. Listen to what Paul says in verse 19 and 20. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. I mean, could it be any plainer than that? You do not belong to yourself, your body included. It is not your property. Now, doesn't this go against every fibre of our current culture? We've all heard it, my body, my choice. This is the attitude. My body, my choice. And Paul's saying, no, not your body, not your choice. And there's a reason he's saying this, because he's talking especially to those who have been redeemed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who have been forgiven, saved, and redeemed. It is ownership by redemption. And you know what? Yes, it is like a slave being purchased for a particular price. 
But rather than offending us, this should actually amaze us more than anything because that price was the death of God's only perfect beloved Son. And we are not purchased to remain in slavery. We are redeemed to be set free. You are owned by the only being who can truly be in control. The only one who is truly trustworthy. Who gives the good gift of grace to all who know him and who invites us into a relationship. It's a meaningful connection. Not just any relationship, but that of adopted children. As Jesus says in John chapter 8, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Paul picks up on this in Galatians 4. He says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. We'll come back to that in a little bit. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. See, this ownership of God's is not just about redemption. It's also about union. Consider what Paul says in our passage. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Our bodies. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Our bodies are members of Christ's body. We belong, in every sense of the word, to Jesus who is the head. We're part of a bigger body. We are not independent units who can run around in isolation and do whatever we want and it doesn't matter. We're members and parts of Christ. And then on top of that redemption and that union, God's ownership is also based on salvation. In verse 14, Paul mentions our our future resurrection. And we don't have time to, to go right into that today. He comes back to it in 1 Corinthians 15, about the resurrection of the dead. But we have to remember that our bodies will also be raised. Not just our souls, but our bodies as well. They are a combo package. They go together. And then if all that weren't enough, as an aside, if you are married, your body first belongs to God and then Secondly, to your spouse, which Paul describes in the next chapter. And then finally, lastly, to you as a steward on loan. 
And so when you are making decisions about your body, particularly sexual decisions, they have to go firstly through God and secondly through your spouse. And it should never be any other way. It's not what the world says, is it? You do whatever you want. It's up to you. That's not how it is according to Scripture. And so there's freedom in God's ownership, but also in His occupancy. And these two are inextricably linked. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Our bodies are part of Christ's body, and the link is His Spirit living in our bodies. And so Paul can say in Colossians, you know, Christ, we are in Christ, but Christ is also in us. You know, the Spirit no longer lives in a temple building, but instead in us. And that makes our bodies holy, special, important. They are the dwelling place of God Himself. Now, hopefully you don't often think of your body this way, but if your body was a toilet stall, if the lock on that toilet stall would not say vacant, it would say occupied. And as a kid, I, always, I have to admit, I always wondered, why do they use the word engaged instead of, like, occupied? What is that? What's that all about? And of course, then I grew up and I realised that it means the cubicle is spoken for. It's taken. It's not available. Nobody else can go in there. And it's a bit like someone who's engaged to be married, isn't it? They're taken. They're spoken for. They're not available. Nobody else can ask. And so it goes for Christians. We are occupied, engaged, spoken for. We are not available. We are not going to unite ourselves with anyone or anything else because we are already united to Christ. He is our faithful, fulfilling, loving master. He is the only one who can satisfy us, literally filling us with his spirit to unite us to himself. Now, of course, under Christ and in him, he gives us marriage. Then any other kind of filling is not to be had. See, sex should always be about intimacy. Always. When we separate it from intimacy, whether it's within marriage or without of marriage, we make it something else entirely. We ruin it when it's not about relationship. But here's the thing, even sex can never be as intimate as the spiritual connection we have with our Maker through Christ and His Spirit. Now, sex and marriage were made to reflect that intimacy. They are a picture of that intimacy, but they will never match that intimacy. And so if that's what true, fulfilling freedom looks like, what does it look like to live it out? To follow it in our lifestyle. Paul uses two imperative words that define our response. Flee and honour. 
Verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Bolt from it. Tuck tail and run. Bail. Jump ship. You might like to think of Joseph, uh, you know, bolting away from the bed of Potiphar's wife when she tries to seduce him. He leaves his cloak and, and just he's off in his undies, out of there. Paul doesn't just say, you know, try. Or just watch your step or just be a little bit careful. He says, flee, skedaddle, vamoose, leg it out of there. If you are flirting with someone and you attempted to cheat on your spouse, get out of that potentially damaging relationship today. Now. If your screens are your ticket to lust and pornography, do something about it now. Arrange an accountability partner. Look into the apps and software that is available. Connect with that person and and get the help that's needed. Use parental restrictions if you have to. If you want to chat with me after this service about what it looks like to make good choices, I am happy to help. And I'm sure there are others as well. Or if there's other indulgences that are contributing to a weak defense for you, you know, whether it's sugar or shopping or workaholism, or video games, or whatever it might be. Cut that stuff back. Cut it off if you need to. And don't just flee from the bad. Flee to the good. Paul says to his protege, Timothy, he says, pursue godliness. Pursue righteousness. Revel in your relationship with God. Embrace his gifts, embrace his control, embrace his acceptance and adoption. Cut back on the indulgence, but replace it with his means of grace. The word, prayer, ministry and witness. Say no to the seductress and say yes to your betrothed, which is Christ himself. And then as verse 20 says, honour God with your bodies. Worship Him with your bodies. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans 12, make them living sacrifices. This is about giving back to God what is already His. As we've said, we are stewards. And we want to honour the owner with the things that He's placed under our care. And so we treat them with respect. Just like you would if you were to borrow someone's car. You don't go trashing it and doing burnouts. Not if you're an honourable person anyway. You go careful with it. It's the same with your body. You need to eat right. Exercise. Keep yourself clean. Look after yourself. We all feel a bit challenged after that, don't we? And don't trash your body whether it's with prostitution or adultery or pornography or non-sexual things, don't use your body for selfish gratification. Use it to honour God. That's what He made it for. And again, if you have a spouse, use it to honour them. Apply your body in practice. Apply it to the service of your God and the service of your spouse, if you have one. 
But as well as avoiding the impurities, we also need to avoid worshipping our bodies, don't we? Worshipping them instead of God. Because our bodies are a means to worship and not the target of our worship. Beauty and fitness should be a way to honour God, not be idols in and of themselves. Now you hear secular people talk about my body is a temple and it's all like, that's what I'm going to pump weights and I'm going to just make it my God and you know, my body is who I am. That's not what it means. If your body is a temple, it is for God's glory, not your own. Your body is not to be used to get people to like you and say, oh, that, that person's hot or you know, look how good looking they are. Look at the way they work out and they keep care of themselves. Your body is to help people get to know God. So give it back. Give it back. Put yourself in the offering bag when it comes around. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, don't just live your life. Give your life. That's our calling. Give your life. Give your body. Give your energy. Don't spend yourself on selfish lust or on overworking or overeating or overdrinking. Spend yourself on God's honour. And if your work or your sport or your other activities are not honouring God, then change them. Change them. And if you've got particular skills or you're really good at something, channel that towards His glory or don't bother. And when it comes to sex, finally, don't make the same two mistakes as the world does. Don't make too little of sex. Don't treat the physical as if it's unimportant. Don't look at sex as a casual arrangement for selfish pleasure. You know, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. It's bollocks. It's total rubbish. It is God's gift for intimate marriage relationships. It is union and oneness. And you know what? It is not just physical. It is spiritual as well. But then also, don't make too much of sex. It does not make the world go round. I mentioned before, it's no wonder our world is so confused. On the one hand, it tries to say sex is nothing. And on the other hand, it says it's everything. Sex is not the underlying reason for our existence. And I'm no psychologist, but... I'm just going to say it, Sigmund Freud was wrong. It does not define every thought, action and relationship. And it won't be for everyone. And that's totally okay. Relationships in general are essential. We need them. But marriage and sex is not for everyone. Look beyond it. Not just if you're single, if you're married too. Look beyond it. Look at the meaning and the intimacy that is found in other places. Most importantly, it being found in God. 
in our union with Christ and the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. And from that, the oneness of Christ's body, the church. The connection we have through Christ's Spirit. That is ultimate fulfillment. That is ultimate intimacy. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge this morning that this is a challenging topic. Sex is all around us. It is, we live in a world that is saturated by it. And we live in a world that is so confused by it. And Father, we thank you that you have given us, in your word, the model for us to live by. We even see in your son Jesus himself, sex is not the definition of our lives. You are. Your design, your redemption, our union with you, and the Spirit dwelling in our lives. Lord, help us to be defined by you, not our sexuality. But we pray too, Lord, that we respect sex for what it is, for the gift that you've made it. But Lord, for the married couples here, that they may give it the right importance, in balance with friendship, with partnership, and not neglect and for single people here, Lord, that it does not become everything and all we strive for. And that we can enjoy and find relationship and its meaning in so many different places. We pray, Lord, for all of us that you might give us intimacy through your Spirit with your Son and with each other. And that that will fulfill in our lives more than anything else. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.